Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I intend to speak on the subject of long-suffering today, or patience is kind of how we commonly refer to it, but I love the term long-suffering in the King James Bible. I think it kind of describes something about the nature of the patience that God has towards us and that we are to have toward one another. The Bible says that tribulation worketh patience, and the reason that is true is because as you're going through difficult things, tribulations, those things tend to try your patience, and to the extent that you are working that muscle in your spiritual body, so to speak, you can build up a capacity for patience um, in dealing with one another uh, that mirrors, albeit imperfectly, the attribute of God of long-suffering that He has exercised towards us. To get our minds wrapped around this notion, I want to start in Psalm 86, which is a prayer of David, and I consider it to be kind of the sinner's experience. That's what I wrote down in my Bible next to this psalm. This is uh, very much the experience of a quickened child of God that has some sensibilities about his unrighteousness and his standing before a holy and perfect God. And David, I think, expresses it very well under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Bow down thine ear, O Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. That's that poor, weak, and worthless that we like to sing about, right? That's the sentiment right there. Poor and needy is poor, weak, and worthless, as we would say it in our spiritual songs. Preserve my soul, for I am holy, O thou my God. Save thy servant that trusteth in thee. That holy, by the way, is not, David's not trying to say, I live a perfect life. Holiness really has within it the notion of being set apart. He knows that he's been set apart by God's mercy, not because of anything that he ever did, but he's recognizing God's covenant mercy toward him, what the Bible calls the sure mercies of David. And he's set apart in that way. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I cry unto thee daily. Rejoice the soul of thy servant, for unto thee, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. The word long-suffering is not explicitly in that phrase, but there's a notion of long-suffering towards God that exists in that statement. Good and ready to forgive. Well, forgiveness implies that you haven't done everything you ought to do, right? You need forgiveness. And that's the state that David sees himself in, and implicit in that, if we haven't been immediately destroyed in our transgression, is that God must be long-suffering towards us, right? For this situation to be kind of an ongoing concern. Give ear, O Lord, unto my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble I will call upon thee, for thou wilt answer me. Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord, neither are there any works like unto thy works." All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name. For thou art great and doest wondrous things, thou art God alone. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth, unite my heart to fear thy name. I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify thy name 
forevermore. I don't think that is the perpetual state that God's people walk in, but we sing of being given a foretaste of glory divine. And I think in the experience of the child of God, you can look back and say, there have been times in my life where I've really felt close to God. I know there's this promise out there that I'm going to lay hold of one of these days in my experience of being with God and being perfect and looking forward to that and rejoicing in it. Now, we don't see that 24-7, 365, but we get glimpses of it from time to time. And I think this is kind of what David is referring to. Verse 13, For great is thy mercy toward me, and thou hast delivered my soul from the lowest hell. I would suggest that any time you see the term mercy in the Scriptures, God being merciful towards us, implicit in that is that He is long-suffering, right? If God is going to be merciful... He's going to have to be long-suffering. Those things kind of go together, right? If God had no mercy and no long-suffering, the moment Adam transgressed, that would have been it. Total punishment done away with, that's it. But God is merciful and long-suffering, and that's why we see, that's why we have a life. You ever thought about that? Mercy and long-suffering enable you to have a life, a natural existence. God had no mercy and no patience for all of your transgressions and all your imperfections, then there'd be no ability for you to actually live out a natural life. Verse 14, O God, the proud are risen against me, and the assemblies of violent men have sought after my soul and have not set thee before them. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. You see that connection between long-suffering and mercy? Very, very important. I think anytime you see the term mercy, and it's talking about God, that long-suffering is wrapped into that concept, and they're very closely conjoined to one another. O turn unto me and have mercy upon me. Give thy strength unto thy servant, and save the son of thine handmaid. Show me a token for good, that they which hate me may see it and be ashamed, because thou, Lord, hast holpen me and comforted me. So that is David's prayer to the Lord. It is a prayer that points out God's long-suffering toward him. And implicit in that is that David knows he's a sinner. He knows he's done a lot of stuff wrong. The Bible is very honest with you about the lives of the saints. It doesn't tell you that to encourage you to be a practitioner of sin. That would be an incredibly foolish interpretation of the Bible to say, well, David, uh, you know, he did all these horrible things, killed a man and took his wife and, and was a fornicator and an adulterer and all those things. So therefore, I, and he was a man after God's own heart, so I should be able to do the same. Well, that's an incredibly short-sighted interpretation of David's life. David's life was temporally wrecked by the horrible things he did. And while he had what's called the sure mercies of David and a salvation that was part of an everlasting covenant that's ordered in all things and sure, that does not mean that he did not suffer temporal consequences for his practice of sin in this life. David knew he was a sinner and he knew the only chance he had was from a merciful God who was going to be long-suffering with his many, many mistakes. The three things I want to put before you today, long-suffering is an attribute of God. This is a function of who God is. 
The very world that we have, that it's able to exist with all of the awful things that are going on, is an enormous testimony to the fact that God must be long-suffering in these things, right? So I don't think it's something that God so much chooses to do as it is something that arises out of who God is, right? This is part of His nature. It's His nature to be this way. And we see that in how He deals with us, not only in temporal affairs, but also in eternal affairs. So we want to see that it's an attribute of God. It's also a spiritual capacity that is given to God's people in regeneration. There's a lot said in the Bible about the notion of being patient. A lot of it is about how God is, and some of it is how we ought to be. There's many things in the New Testament, in particular with reference to a gospel minister, about you need to be patient. And that's not there for no reason. I believe that it is natural for us to be impatient. That's the thing we're fighting. We want to be impatient. We want it now. We want it fixed right away. We don't want to wait for it. Our American consumer mindset and financial affluence only serves to strengthen this carnal impulse that we have because we tend to have enough money to be able to get what we want when we want it and we expect it that way. When you go sit down in a restaurant, if they don't bring your meal in 10 minutes, you're kind of, well, where are they? Where are they? I'm paying them for this meal. They need to get here. You know, I've been a good customer here all these years and I've never had to wait more than 10 or 15 minutes for a meal. It's been 20 minutes and the waiter hasn't even looked my way. This is outrageous. Now that's a meal. That's a meal. God is, God is long-suffering towards us over horrible iniquities that He can't even look at. They're just so contrary to who God is. And yet He's long-suffering with us in that way. And we have a hard time waiting longer than we want for a meal. Right? We get hangry. Right? And uh, that tends to bring out our impatience and our carnal nature. I get it. I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. And I'm probably going to go eat after this church service somewhere. And, uh, you know, if they take too long, I'm going to be hungry when I get there. And if they take too long, I'm probably going to feel that carnal urge to be impatient rising up in me. But uh, we are told to be. God's people have been given patience. Do you believe that today? I'm not naturally very patient. And ministers are told to be patient. So this is a real tension in my life. It's something I've got to keep a check on. So we've been given it. And it's important to recognize we've been given patience as a fruit of the Spirit because it doesn't allow us a refuge of saying, well, I know we should be patient, but I by nature am not very patient. I'm just not a patient person. I'm sure other people are very patient, but I by nature... You know what? None of us by nature are patient. Some of us may be naturally less impatient than someone else, but we're all impatient by function of our carnal nature. And that's what tends to rise up in us. So it's been given to us and that kind of, well, to whom much is given, much is required, I believe is a principle that's taught in the Bible. And if you've been given patience as a fruit of the Spirit, there's going to be some requirement laid upon that in terms of how you are to exercise it as a disciple. So we've been given it in regeneration, and the purpose of that is for us to cultivate and practice patience, particularly in regards to how we deal with one another. So, 
Let's look at those three points briefly if we can. I want to start in Exodus chapter 20, show you something here. Now, for those of you who don't know, that's the Ten Commandments. Paul said, give attention to reading. And uh, God gave these to the Israelites. It's probably important that we know them. I'm going to read them. Some people refer to this as the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath, under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Remember this idea that mercy and long suffering are closely conjoined with one another. If God is going to be merciful against iniquity, he's going to have to be long suffering, is he not? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. How long has it been since you read the Ten Commandments? It's kind of interesting to think about. Sometimes Christian people in conversations, they'll be like, well, the Ten Commandments, this and that, but do we go back and actually read them and kind of refresh our minds? We tend to have a dumbed down version of what they are, I think, if we don't read it from time to time. I saw an interesting observation on this verse as it relates to creation and the age of the earth. If you're trying to squeeze millions and millions of years into the six days of creation, none of us are ever going to get a day of rest. You follow me? The Bible's like, there were six days of creation. There's going to be six days that you work, and you're going to rest the seventh day. And if those are millions of years, ain't any of us going to live six million years, so I don't know why any of you are resting on any day. Follow me? Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Well, there it is. God's laid out the Ten Commandments to the children of Israel. These are my rules. House rules. You want to be with the Lord? There it is. Is the Lord going to have to be long-suffering if those are His rules? How long do you think it was from the moment this was given to them before somebody broke one of those ten things? Interesting question. Nevertheless, we know they were broken, and that caused a lot of problems. And if we're still here, (laughs) if the story of Israel didn't end at that very moment, what do we know? God must be merciful. He must be long-suffering in how he deals with people who are transgressors. Turn over to Exodus chapter 34, and you'll find this. (laughs) And the Lord said unto Moses, Hew thee two tablets of stone like unto the first. Now wait a minute. (laughs) Why are we having to come up with a second set of tablets here? I mean, imagine if God gave you something, some physical something, you know. 
it'd be pretty important, right? I mean, God gave you some token of His presence, of some interaction that you had with Him, which was inscribed in His own finger. This would be an incredibly important thing, would it not? And yet, in chapter 34, we're at a place where God's going to have to give him a second version of this. You see that? Is God going to have to be patient with people who have taken tablets of stone that He gave them and have since had to throw them down at people who were breaking all the laws? And God's long-suffering. We're in the same book. This is in a time when God is doing miraculous wonders before God's people. And they've seen some incredible things prior to the notion of being given the law at Mount Sinai. And yet, God is having to reproduce the tablets because they didn't last all that long, did they? God is long-suffering. By the way, the book of Deuteronomy, you know what Deuteronomy means? It's kind of like the second Telling is kind of what that means. And those of you who are reading through the Bible right now are going to get to Deuteronomy if you're not there already. Now you won't be there already. You're going to find, well, this sounds like a repeat of a lot of stuff that I've read before, and that's exactly what it is. Deuteronomy is a retelling of all the stuff that I told you before, and you've since broken in manifold ways, so I'm going to tell it to you again. See why God is referred to as a father? That's one of the attributes of parenting and fatherhood that we recognize is that you don't just tell your children one thing, one time, and they've got it from that point forward. You have to consistently be long-suffering with respect to their performance compared to your standard, and you have to continue to reinforce it. I have to tell you again. I have to tell you again. Deuteronomy, then is an entire book of retelling a bunch of stuff. I mean, kind of simplified uh, explanation of Deuteronomy is. Very interesting to me that the book that Jesus Christ quoted more than any other book was Deuteronomy. That's interesting to me. I might be inclined to think, well, well, Jesus, if He was going to quote something, why didn't He tell them about the first time they were told something? See what I'm saying? Why didn't He go back to the source? Why did he go to Deuteronomy so much? There's a subtle message in that, which is, I guess I've said something like this as a parent. I've told you once, and I've told you twice, and now I'm telling you again, right? I mean, that's kind of the the implication there. You've been told this multiple times, and every bit of that, even in the fact that Jesus Christ is quoting Deuteronomy, He's quoting a book that testifies to God's long-suffering and patience towards His people. And in quoting it later in the New Testament, He's further proving God's long-suffering and patience towards His people. Verse 2, And be ready in the morning, and come up in the morning unto the Mount Sinai, and present thyself there to me in the top of the mount. And no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor the herds feed before that mount. And he hewed two tablets of stone like unto the first. I've got that underlined in my Bible. <laughs> He's doing this again. This second set of tablets is a testimony to God's long-suffering patience and mercy towards His people, is it not? And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, 
the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. That's God's testimony of Himself giving a second set of tablets to the children of God. The act of giving those tablets is an act of long-suffering mercy and patience. And He's testifying to these attributes of Himself even in the midst of this. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. That's a very interesting phrase because it sounds like at the beginning of that sentence he's saying, you know, I'm going to be merciful and forgiving. And then he says, but I'm not going to clear the guilty. God makes His people righteous through the imputed righteousness of Christ. He doesn't simply say, like a doting grandfather, I know you stole cookies out of the cookie jar, but I'm just going to forget about it. You see, God's long-suffering is not some casual ability to overlook and ignore your practice of evil. There was a price that had to be paid. He bought your righteousness in Christ. You see that? So when He clears you, He is not merely saying, I'm going to pretend that didn't happen like your grandpa did when you took cookies out of the cookie jar. Something had to be done to pay for that. And you are not guilty anymore as a result of it. You see that? That's the work of Christ. He made you not guilty by imputing your sins to Christ and imputing His righteousness to you, and thus you are not guilty. Had He not done that transaction then God could be accused of being someone who merely clears the guilty. You're guilty? There's no Jesus Christ, no dual imputation in view. Your sins were not paid for. Christ didn't take them away, didn't nail them to the tree. You don't have His righteousness. It's just God overlooking things. Well, that seems to be the way some people look at God, but that is not how the saving transaction took place. God's people are not guilty. That is the gospel declaration we should all lay hold of and (laughs) rejoice in. We are not guilty because of what Christ did. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And that's what's being alluded to here. So God is patient. In Numbers chapter 14, this is just a little while later, He makes this statement. Chapter 14, verse 18, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. Well, there He is saying the same thing again. I don't think God speaks idle words. And if you see this being repeated again in the book of Numbers, it is a testimony to the fact that God is long-suffering. He's saying, I am long-suffering. And the fact that He's saying this again and having to teach it again to a wayward and stiff-necked people is evidence of His long-suffering. Now, Galatians 5.22, this is not remotely controversial, but I think we should hit it and look at it. We know that... Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience and long-suffering being essentially the same thing. And if we look at this Galatians, I'll start in verse 19 because I think the fruit of the Spirit, it's helpful to see sort of what the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit, which is the works of the flesh. This is what you can contrast what you have in Christ and what you have in the Holy Spirit that indwells you versus what arises out of your carnal and fallen nature. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are manifest which are these? 
Any of this stuff that you see, it's coming out of the flesh of man. It is the fallen nature of man that produces this sort of evilness that the Bible refers to as the works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envying, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. That's a pretty terrible list right there. But you ever see any of that in your community? Any of that going on? There's many people in this world who engaged in such an orgy of these activities within the last 24 hours that it would have been nigh on impossible for them to end up in church at 1030 this morning. It's rampant in our society. Our television shows glory in it. It's so worked into the warp and woof of American society that I suspect we're highly insensitive to it. But that's what arises out of your carnal nature. And in contrast to that, he says in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Right? If you're functioning in the domain of those spiritual attributes, that ninefold fruit of the Spirit, if that's how you're living, when it says against such there is no law, if you're living in that way, you're never going to bump into the law as a problem. You see what I'm saying? Now we do because we don't always live that way, but if that's how we're living, and one of those attributes is long-suffering. I wonder how much trouble has been visited into our lives, our friendships, our marriages, our relationships with our children as a result of our lack of patience and being long-suffering toward them? That's a very convicting question. We tend to be more charitable and long-suffering to people we don't know quite as well. Maybe it's because we feel at liberty to be more open with those who are very close to us, maybe those within our own household. We can be much more impatient with them than would be deemed socially appropriate dealing with other people, right? So that's something to keep in mind. But the thing I want to draw out of this is that this is a fruit of the Spirit. There's no argument to be made here based on your nature. Well, I am by nature very impatient. Well, guess what? Join the club. That's everybody. Everybody is by nature very selfish, impatient. They want what they want. They want it now. Maybe some people have that to a much greater extent than other people do. But our sinful nature is one that makes us impatient. Okay? Nevertheless, God has given you the spiritual attribute of patience. And He is now requiring you to cultivate it and put it in practice. So... I don't want us to build a refuge of nature, you know, what people are by nature. I realize that people have certain proclivities that may not be equivalent one to another. But nevertheless, we all have been given long-suffering as a fruit of the Spirit. So we have a responsibility to cultivate it as best we can. James chapter 5, I'm going to skip past that. He speaks of Job, and Elder Phelan wrote a a book of Job, Six Words That God Hates. We've got a copy of it out there. It's available online if you want to buy it. But have you considered my servant Job? So Job is, of course, the classic example of patience in the Bible. I think I will read this James passage now that I'm looking at it. Let me put this before you, because James makes reference 
to Job. He starts in chapter 5 and verse 7. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and the latter rain. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. See, that's where the matter of long-suffering and patience comes into play, is that we begin to, you know, people don't rub each other the right way all the time. There's a little friction that takes place, and it stirs up some contention between two people. And maybe at times that's just a result of someone being impatient, right? And so it's trying to warn us against that. Patience is a sort of social lubrication, if you will. If you think about the gears of some mechanism trying to spin together at a high rate of speed, if you don't have some oil in there, that thing is going to heat up and then it's going to seize up, right? This is We know this very evidently from just dealing with lawnmowers and cars and things like that. You've got to have something in there that helps to cool things down, helps things to work together. You got to have some ability for those metal parts to slide past one another rather than grind against one another. And that's what long suffering does in social interactions. It's kind of the lubrication of the machine of the kingdom of God, if you will, that keeps it from grinding the gears and seizing up from heat. He goes on to say, Take, my brethren, the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering, affliction, and patience. That's what Paul said about these people in the Old Testament being in samples. You can learn something. The Old Testament is relevant. Look at how they endured all kinds of suffering and circumstances, and you're going to have to endure that too. And you need patience to be able to do it. Behold, we count them happy which endure. You have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. So you can go back and read Job and you can kind of compare whatever difficulties you're going through to what Job was going through. And you can look at his responses and you can look at your own and you can take a lesson from that about how Job dealt with these things and trying to be long suffering and patient with respect to the tribulations he was enduring. So that's what James says about it. If we go back and look at an example from Job, Job chapter two, this is kind of an amazing testimony of Job's patience. In the face of afflictions that are (laughs) of biblical proportions, right? I mean, we all know people who have suffered more than others. And it's maybe hard to think of someone who's had calamities come upon him of this magnitude and nature and suddenness and condensed into such a narrow frame of time as what happened to Job. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said unto Satan, From whence comest thou? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. That's the uh, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, right? It's up to no good in our lives for sure. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that feareth God and escheweth evil? And still he holdeth fast his integrity, although thou movedest me against him to destroy him without cause. So Job is holding fast here, even in the midst of all the things that happened in the first chapter, which is kind of like losing everything. Let's just call it that. You're losing your kids, you're losing your stuff. Overnight, you just go from everything's great to 
kind of everything is destroyed, save the matter of his health, which is now going to get called into question. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. But put forth thine hand now, and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, he is in thine hand, but save his life. So went Satan forth from the presence of the Lord, and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto his crown. That's from head to toe. And he took him a potsherd to scrape himself withal, and he sat down among the ashes. That's a horrible affliction. It's hard to imagine being in that state, particularly after what happened in the previous chapter. Would that try your patience? I mean, it's a serious trial to any man's patience. But it gets worse. (laughs) Verse 9, Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. I mean, that's a remarkable testimony to Job's patience in the matter, in the midst of affliction. And as it says earlier in this chapter, it says that Job was one that feareth God. What does that tell us about Job? Job feared God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 18 says that there's no fear of God before their eyes. It's speaking of the unregenerate, those who are not born of the Spirit. So Job feared God, and the unregenerate have no fear of God. That tells you that Job was a born-again man. Job was a man who had the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit of God, one of which is long-suffering or patience, and he was putting it into practice. That's really probably the primary lesson that we get from Job is in the midst of great affliction, how you can maintain this sort of frame, which is constructed by the Holy Spirit's gifts rather than by our carnal nature, which would be apt to complain about those things. Well, I think we see that long-suffering is given in regeneration as a fruit of the Spirit, that we can apply it. There's a couple of examples in the New Testament that I look at as we close. And this is how we are to practice and cultivate long-suffering. Let's see, Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. This is an admonition to God's people. It's kind of like how you're supposed to be. How should I live? Well, here's one of the examples of it. Put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. Now that is a very high bar on forgiveness. Jesus at one point told somebody that you've got to forgive people 70 times 7, right? That's 490 forgivenesses. There's a lot that could be said about that, but it's a lot of forgiveness, right? I mean, It's way more than the person who was asking the question thought should be in play. Should I do it seven times? Well, how about 70 times seven? He's kind of blowing the the matter out of the water in terms of the proportionality that that person was thinking. But that is an illusion, an allusion, not illusion, but allusion to this principle, which is, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. 
Now, 70 times 7 in the context of that earlier conversation that I referenced seems like a lot, right? 490 forgivenesses? Well, how many times have you sinned? There's 365 days in a year. And a lot of y'all have way more than one year on the odometer so far as I can tell. So if you're sinning one time a day in some thought or deed or, I mean, really, you've racked up an unbelievable list of transgressions in the eyes of God. That's way more than 70 times 7. 490 won't even get you through a year and a half. You follow me? If you're doing one a day. 490 is a big number, but it's not big enough to cover the measure of long-suffering that God has had towards your transgressions. And in this statement, Jesus is talking about, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. I believe what that means is that if there is some thing you harbor in your heart where you're not forgiving someone, you need to let that go. You need to forgive that person and move on about it. Instead of harboring it because it hasn't been handled quite right. You've got to move on from it. It's bad for you and bad for them. And it is inconsistent with the principle of long-suffering that we're supposed to have as a fruit of the Spirit. Another example is over in 1 Timothy. And this is one that I start talking about the pastoral epistles. It really starts to... Uh, you know, as someone who is admittedly naturally kind of impatient, this kind of is a burr in my saddle. It's convicting, and I kind of have to keep this in mind because it's not me by nature. So it's something I have to work on. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says this, and this is speaking of God's mercy towards him, "...howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern..." to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. So Paul is underscoring, look, he called himself the chief of sinners, right? Paul's looking out there in the world of sin. He's looking in the sin marketplace, and he's like, I'm top of the heap in terms of sinners. If you're going to just measure sin, you know, I persecuted the church. I was putting Christian people to death. I was violating my own conscience at times. There's all kinds of really ugly stuff in the Apostle Paul's life if you sit and think about it for a moment. I've often brought up how great the mercy of God must have been outpoured to the New Testament church to be able to accommodate the idea that the Apostle Paul who killed one of your family members is now standing up in your church and preaching the gospel to you. I think that without a radical outpouring of God's Spirit like what was prophesied in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which was fulfilled in the New Testament era, without that sort of outpouring of the Spirit, I just honestly don't believe that anyone would have been able to tolerate that. If you think about the person who is most dear to you in your life, having been killed by someone and you knew this person was responsible for it, and now that person is coming up and preaching in your church. He is an apostle who's got authority in this way in your religion. I just think it would take a miraculous outpouring of the Spirit for any man to be able to deal with that. So Paul is magnifying the grace of God by pointing out he was long-suffering to me, the chief of sinners. 
someone who did these horrible transgressions and yet found mercy in God's eyes. And finally, in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, here's a particular long-suffering for the minister. Now, there's many places throughout the New Testament where it talks about how the minister has to be patient. So there, there's a particular burden of patience and long-suffering placed upon a minister that must be exercised within the context of your ministry. And that's true. But this is a different sort of patience here. It says, preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. That's interesting to me, because if you just said preach the word, be instant in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke and exhort with doctrine. It kind of has a different flavor to it. I mean, I can see where a minister might say, well, I just get to get up there and tell them how the cow ate the cabbage, and I don't have to be long-suffering with anybody. If somebody's struggling with coming to understand this truth, I just say, look, I just declared it to you. If you don't get it, that's your problem. You must not be very smart. Maybe you ought to, you know, redouble your efforts. Maybe you ought to be more spiritual. Embedded in this is the idea that gospel ministry requires long-suffering and patience. And people take time to really fully digest spiritual truth. Everybody loves the story of someone who hit a grand slam home run at the bottom of the ninth inning and won the baseball game. That's a very dramatic story, and people love to hear things like that. They love to hear about dramatic conversions on uh, the road to Damascus and things like that. And those things do happen, and they're very popular because they're quite rare. They're unusual. And patience is such an important attribute for a gospel minister to have because in the instruction of God's people, it usually takes time. You don't transport a herd of sheep from one field to green pastures beside still waters like their own Star Trek. There's no Scotty that's going to beam them from one spot to the next, right? They don't just instantly materialize. I got up and I preached some truth. All of a sudden, the sheep were all moved from one pasture to this one, and now they're beside the still waters. It doesn't work that way. If you ever watch those videos on YouTube of sheep dogs and shepherds trying to move these sheep around, I mean, it's just a, they're kind of moving them along and some of them are straying off and they're keeping them in a, kind of get them all through the gate, get them into the next pasture. It is a process that takes time and requires patience. You have to be patient. You have to expect that the occasional sheep is going to wander off from the fold. He's not going to follow with the rest of them. You've got to kind of help them get back in there, and you've got to move them along. And all of that requires patience. And if you go into it thinking, I'm going to get all these sheep from one field to the next, and I'm going to get it done in two minutes, you're going to be a very unhappy shepherd. It's just not going to happen that way. You've got to recognize that this activity takes some time and allow for the time and deal with uh, the straying sheep with patience. So it's incredibly important. Why do we do this with all long-suffering and doctrine? We've got to be careful about the nature of the work and the time that it takes to move the sheep and shepherd them properly. And here's why. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So there's other things that are going to distract the sheep and start trying to pull them off in a lot of different directions. And so you need to be aware of this and stay about the task 
with patience of moving them where they need to go. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. So hopefully what we've done today is show you that long-suffering is really an attribute of God. God is long-suffering, but I don't want you to think of it as, well, God was just sitting there and He decided, I think I'll be long-suffering. I mean, this is kind of a function of who God is. This arises out of who God is. He's merciful and patient with us. If He wasn't, none of us would even have a natural life. He has to be patient with us. So this is a function of who God is. That attribute or that fruit is given to us in regeneration. All of God's people, all of you who have a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who believe on His name, who have been born of the Spirit, you have patience. You have long-suffering. There may be some question as to whether or not you have cultivated it to the degree that is possible. And I suspect none of us have cultivated to the degree that is possible. But we can do better, can we not? And it's an important social lubrication within the machine of the kingdom of God. It keeps things from overheating. How many times in your life can you think about some interaction that was heated up because someone was being impatient? If you could go back and fix that and say, if I could do that again and not heat up the situation through impatience, would it not have made the machine of that conversation work a whole lot better? So we have it. We need to cultivate it and practice it. And we are taught to do that in the New Testament. So I pray that's a blessing to you. I pray that we would all be more aware of our proclivity for being impatient. And if we're comfortable with being impatient, I want to make you uncomfortable with it today. I want to be more uncomfortable with my own impatience in things. And I'll get an opportunity to do that when I go to lunch after church today, (laughs) if my meal comes a little bit late. I mean, that's a trivial example, but it plays out in all of our relationships, in all of our lives. And our lives will be so much better if we can cultivate that patience, which is a manifestation of God in us. And it's an attribute of God upon which our salvation is based. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.